10, 16 to 23. I invite you to turn there. I want to uh, be faithful to the scriptures. I want to be able to uh, show you how I see these truths. Uh, these are not, uh, the, if I've done my work and uh, examined the text, how I have, if you will, paraphrased the content will be evident from the scriptures. I will be able to show you uh, and encourage you in weeks to come. Now, that picture on the slide is not very encouraging. Uh, I showed this slide uh, to Jeremy this week uh, in, in general context of the whole flow, and uh, his first reaction was like that when he saw this, uh, this slide. And uh, I, I don't, this is not an endorsement of Hollywood, but um, there was uh, an inst there was a, uh, a showing of The Patriot a few years ago in which uh, back in the colonial days, uh, there were church burnings. Uh, but the directors of that film said, you know, that's not really going to impact people today. You have to have people in the building locked in and burning for it to make an impact in this generation. And I was actually pleased that it did make an impact on Jeremy when he saw a, a church burning with the cross. Uh, but this is emblematic of the kind of persecution that the church has had and experienced through the centuries, maybe not as we have known it here in America in recent days, uh, but there is persecution uh, throughout the global church, and we as uh, brothers and sisters living in a time of peace need also to remember that these are true things that are occurring. And uh, Jesus, in his sermon to his disciples about doing mission, encouraged us to take seriously the reality that persecution may come uh, upon the church at different seasons. And uh, the harvest is vast. The labors are few. And yet there will be wolves, as our text shows us this morning. Let's look at verse 16 and read this text together. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you will you are to say will be given to you in that hour for it is not you who speak but the spirit of your father speaking through you brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved when they persecute you in one town flee to the next for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. This paragraph, Jesus fortifies his 12 disciples, his 12 disciples with realism. He fortifies them with realism. Realism is an essential, it's an essential characteristic it's essential to be effective as an embassy in the world that we live, to realistically evaluate 
what's going on around us. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with what realism means, I think we understand it intuitively, but technically it means the attitude or practice of accepting a situation as it is and being prepared to deal with it accordingly. Uh, realism is a very important character trait. It's actually a faithful character trait of following Jesus Christ. Um, we're actually introduced to realism in the last section of this sermon in which Jesus said there are times when people will reject your message and it would be better for you to go and move on to those who will receive your message. That's realism. That's assessing carefully uh, what's going on in front of you and adapting yourself to the mission. It's actually unrealistic to keep investing in someone who's unwilling to change. That's unrealistic. And if they're unwilling to follow the clear commands that are in Scripture, you're spinning. You're wasting your time. And it's important that they not be taking up space, if you will, in the boat. Previously, in Matthew, we saw Jesus, and you might remember, Jesus standing at the Sea of Galilee. At the Sea of Galilee, he was inviting those who would want to follow him to get into the boat to go to the other side. Jesus started to call the crowd and said, if you're not willing to truly follow me, then you can stay on the shore, and those who truly will follow me will get into the boat and come with me to the other side. Now, we don't have the ability to read hearts. Jesus had that unique, divine omniscience to understand people's hearts. And yet, it's imperative that we dig a little bit to assess where people's hearts are. We must be patient with people, yes. But we also need to be realistic and we need to have the humility to follow Jesus when he says to shake the dust off and move to those who are worthy, who are willing to receive the truth that we bring them. Now, this text that we're looking at this morning is as much about realism as it is about the potential of suffering persecution from wolves. And this is critically important because we have to be realistic about the kinds of dangers that we will experience as we follow for his sake. And this text, I'm going to drive home this important point that to flourish in mission, we must adopt a realistic view of danger for his name's sake. As I read this text, you may have heard me read aloud for his name's sake or for my namesake that comes up several times as the impetus for why you would might receive persecution from the world. And accepting persecution for his namesake is a kind of risk assessment. We are called to assess and to take a calculated look at the potential dangers that we may have being associated with Jesus Christ. We must be realistic that this, if it was true for Jesus, would also be true for those who follow him for his name's sake. Now, this paragraph 
has a wider perspective than the previous paragraph that we looked at last Sunday. In the last text that we looked at, in verse 6, they were instructed to only go to the lost sheep of Israel. This text is a little bit broader because it involves witness to governors being dragged before kings, being dragged before the Gentiles. And there's also a discussion of universal rejection by family and of the wider unbelieving world that's described here. And it requires a period of hostility to Jesus which has not yet occurred as Jesus is presenting this to his disciples. They were going to spend time in Galilee and not even fully cover the territory and the towns of the household of Israel. Now, I'm going to discuss later in the sermon two particular end-time interpretations that are derived out of this text. And I want to not take away from the big idea here. And so I'm going to leave that more for the end. But it's important to understand that to flourish in mission, we've got to adopt a realistic view of danger so that we are effective for his name's sake. Let's, uh, let's take a look at and break down this text together. Um, verse 16. Realism fosters wisdom and wholeheartedness. Verse 16, we read again, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. This is kind of like a bridge verse. It, it kind of moves us from one topic and the last, like his last main point. And now we're moving into a new point about persecution. And this little transitional verse is full of metaphors. It's also filled with instruction. He says, behold. That's like, pay attention. That's not actually something that sheep do. Sheep are filled with problems because they're not paying attention. And in the next verse, he, he begins to say, now, beware of men. And, and so there's an implication that these are the wolves that he, we have to pay attention to, not like sheep who are ambivalent to what's going on around them. And then there's this instruction about being wise as serpents, being innocent as doves. Now, wouldn't it have been better if Jesus had said, you know, I'm sending you out as tigers into the face of wolves, right? But he doesn't, he doesn't give us that descriptive that we're tigers. He he gives us this image of sheep that are, they're not predatorial. They're not, they're, they're actually a liability. And this is a true statement. If we are going to be earnest about following what Jesus has directed us to do in the Sermon on the Mount. If we take our calling seriously then we're going to be perceived by the wider world as naive. Easy prey to people who are lawless and willing to subvert what's morally right in order to get what they want. 
Jesus taught us to love our enemies as ourselves and to pray for those who persecute us. Where we're not to retaliate to the one who strikes us on the cheek. Instead, we're to give the other cheek. Those don't align with our natural inclinations. I mean, if someone insults us publicly, what do we want to do? We want to give them a knuckle sandwich or we want to... Um, one-up them in the insult list. But that's not what God has called us to do. He's called us to go out, as it were, to be like sheep in the midst of others who are not going to behave as sheep. Others who are going to be like wolves. And this also causes us to take seriously and to behold and be ready and beware of people and understand truly what our hearts are about. Even as sheep, we may be tempted to respond in kind, but we cannot trust our heart or our gut as, that's the, as if that's the right thing we ought to do. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Paul also said something very similar. He said, so I find in my, myself a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. We have a heart that, yes, if we've accepted Christ as our Savior, we have the gift of the Holy Spirit, but we are not fully redeemed until we enter glory. We still have a sin nature that affects us and tempts us and inflicts us. And the idea of being like a dove is an innocence that is like a child, an innocence of a wholeheartedness. Children don't have ulterior motives. Well, some of them have ulterior motives. Yes, I get that as they get a little bit older. But when they are sincere, you know that they're wholehearted in their affections. This is the idea and what Jesus is driving for of dove-like innocence is a wholeheartedness that the, the log in your eye has been taken out and you're looking to Jesus for everything that you need. That he is the prime uh, reason for your existence. A wholeheartedness that chooses not to retaliate. That chooses not to take snake-like venom and bite people. No, it takes the wisdom of the snake. We are called to have a childlike humility, but also live with an adult capacity of wisdom. You know, sometimes when kids are not what they ought to be and parents kind of are not what they ought to be, sometimes it's good to ask oneself, who's the adult in the room? Right? We have to be adults in the room in God's world. We have to be innocent and careful with ourselves. Now, that's a kind of realism to assess our own hearts properly. There is also Jesus' instruction here that realism wisely assesses people and persecution. Verse 17 uh, and 18, he says, Beware of men, that is the wolves, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. 
to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Beware of men. Opposition may come from any quarter. Opposition and serpents, you know, serpents are wary of people. So beware of men, just as serpents are wary of being stepped on by people. They don't expect to be treated well, do they? I mean, if I see a snake, I'm going to get out my 22 or actually a shotgun or something. I hate snakes. And that's why I live in Pennsylvania. <laughs> but in the same way, disciples of Christ should not assume that people are basically wonderful and would not even think of doing you any wrong. People will turn on you in the blink of an eye. We're not called to trust the people. It's really important. A couple weeks ago, I had a conversation uh, with our mayor through email, and I shared with you a little bit how in town council meeting, I sensed that he had a desire to help people who are struggling, struggling with thoughts of suicide, people who are uh, entrapped and within the LGBT community. And I took time to think about what he was saying, and I did appreciate, and I did notice an appearance of genuine concern for the downtrodden. That's a commendable concern. And I also communicated with him my desire and hope that others would have that as their goal to help other people. Maybe they come at it from a different angle, but at least maybe we would all have a similar desire to help. But I am not so naive that others will agree with me that the scriptures provide the best escape from that community. I can find agreement where I can, but I have to be aware of people, how they really, they can turn on you in a moment. Public opinion can be used against you. They may stop working with you out of disgust for your, your position and convictions. They may even slander you in the community as being a, a hate monger, an extremist. Even worse, like China, we may also at some time be called to suffer physical persecution for stances that we believe we must hold. But we must wisely assess the potential for persecution. Sheep are not called ultimately to suffer unnecessary abuse from the world. We have to be aware that we may suffer abuse, but we can do what we can to secure our protection. No one is called to live if they can escape from abuse in family situations or toxic churches. Those things are not things that you have to subject yourself to indefinitely. You can go and find safety. That's like a wise serpent slipping away to make sure that you're not being hurt unnecessarily. Uh, you may have to retreat from outsiders as a very genuine course of action. And so that's one realism that Jesus is instructing us. Beware of people and also beware of potential persecution. Let's look at a third. How realism causes us, though, to trust our Heavenly Father. 
While Jesus is honest about trouble, he is also honest about trust. We can be realistic about both at the same time. Uh, the word anxiety is used. Let's, let's read verses 19 to 20. He says in verse 19, When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. That word anxiety is a beautiful reminder. Anxiety is not beautiful, but it does remind us of what we can do with our anxiety. In Matthew chapter 6, this brings us mentally back to what Jesus said. That we are not to be anxious about our life. What will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or our body? Or what you will put on? We're not to be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Do we have a Heavenly Father who will raise us from the dead? I hope you say yes from the heart and mean it. The three friends who were with Daniel in Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, believed that God was able to deliver them from Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. And if he so choose, he would then bring them to life at the end of days. This was their hope. And when trouble comes, we have an opportunity to trust our Heavenly Father to provide the courage for us to be able to speak as we ought to speak in those moments. Public speaking is one of the most fearful experiences. It ranks very high on the top fears that people have. And when you're called to stand before a king, a governor, the Gentiles, you may think that you will have nothing worth saying. You need not be anxious. Last Sunday, I neglected to, I had it on my calendar. I neglected to, to mention that it was the 467th anniversary of the martyrdom of Hugh Latimer and of Nicholas Ridley. <coughs> Excuse me. This thing keeps hanging on. Latimer, in England, in 1555, was 70 years old. Most of us at 70, year old, 70 years old are trying to find the easy way out of life, just kind of like retiring existence. Ridley was in his uh, early 50s. Both were preachers in England, and they had a season in which they freely were able to preach the gospel as they believed the gospel taught, uh, the Bible taught. Both men, after the ascension of Bloody Mary, were removed from their pulpits as the political seasons and winds changed. Rumor actually circulated that both men would soon be arrested, and that was calculated to give them an opportunity to flee the country. And yet they, in their own sense, felt that they needed to stay to shepherd the flock 
that couldn't have that opportunity to flee the country. And they never less they stood to resist. They were arrested, they were held in the Tower of London. They were brought to Oxford to stand trial for heresy. They publicly defended the truths of the gospel. And then they were sentenced to burn. They were chained at the stake and bags of gunpowder were put around their necks. And when the flames were kindled, I believe that the spirit of our father spoke through Latimer, who said, be of good cheer, Master Ridley. Play the man. We shall this day light at such a candle of God's grace in England as shall never be put out. That's a very powerful statement. It's inspirational. But that's not coming from Latimer. That's coming from the spirit of the Father in them. Now this passage that I just referred to in Matthew 10, uh, verses 19 to 20, is a text that's often taken out of context, and I would be rem I'd be remiss if I didn't point this out, that it does not promise the Holy Spirit will speak through a pastor who has not done his due diligence of preparation. It also does not mean that you will, given the, will be given the exact words as we witness to others in one-to-one, door-to-door, person-to-person evangelism. Now, God may, but he is not obligated to provide outside of what he has said here. Now, I know people mean well, but... If we're not careful, it can cheapen and degrade the certainty of this exact promise. If you're dragged before a governor, if you're dragged before a king, as it says, for my sake, that's what it says. There is a definite promise there for us that we can put our hope and trust in. There's a fourth part of realism here that I need to attend to, is that realism helps us to endure loss of natural bonds, natural bonds. Verse 21, let's pick up this section of his sermon. Verse 21 says, brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated for, by all for my name's sake. At different seasons and at different times, the breakdown of social order is seen as family members bring about each other's death. That's a very disturbing picture. 700 years before Christ, Micah, the prophet, wrote during the last kings of the northern Israelites, the northern tribes were about to be taken away into captivity, and Micah describing the time period in which he lived, said this, the godly has perished from the earth. There is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Put no trust in neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. And the daughter rises up against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. That's horrifying. 
to think that your family, whom you have birthed, would turn on yourself. Or those who have nurtured you in your youth would then be glad to see you go to the gallows. Horrifying. During the reign of Emperor Trajan in the second century, and during the time of Nero in the mid-60s, it actually became a capital offense to be a Christian. And the world's hatred of Jesus brought about intense family betrayals. People were turned over for misinformation. Why does Jesus so consistently stress the bad news? I mean, I mean, I, I, he's getting ready to send his disciples out and casting out demons and raising people from the dead and shout, proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand. I mean, wouldn't it be better to have a pep talk like about like the success they're going to see? Like, you know, changed lives and cities are going to be converted in mass. And this is a really negative picture, folks. It has always been difficult for those who speak the good news. People do not see it as good news. It's the disruption of their organized lives. Christianity is becoming more and more marginalized, and we will be hated by all for his name's sake. We should expect the resistance to increase, and I am thrilled and I am delighted that our local school district is willing to pass out flyers, but that day may come to an end. We would never imagine that people would turn other people on social media, even their own family members, in for the spread of misinformation. Human nature has not changed. When people are fearful, they become self-preservational. And it's hard in those circumstances to find the right balance of being wise as a serpent and yet harmless as a dove. We may want to strike like the serpent, but that's not what we are called to do. We are called to be harmless as doves, ready to receive others whose family have turned on them to become a new family, the family of God. There's a fifth and last realism that I think that we need to consider in this text, and that is in the last verse that realism keeps us from cashing out before Christ's return. Verse 22, uh, the last little bit of that verse flows into, the ideas flow into the last verse. It says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. This is probably the most challenging verse in, in Matthew to, to assess and come to uh, an interpretation that's definitive. Uh, and given the mention of towns in the verse and then moving from town to town underneath of persecution, 
seems as though Jesus is speaking about the geographical limits of the towns of Israel that they would be going to in Galilee. However, the broader context mentions the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and it seems, though, to include those that would be in the south regions of, of, of Judah to the south. There's something else going on here. This is the third time in this text, the third time in the book of Matthew, the broader text, that we've come to this curious little phrase, son of man. And like the other times, Jesus spoke of himself as the son of man, perhaps not having a place to lay his head. He was referring to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, where Daniel saw one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Daniel's vision is being used, I believe, by Jesus here. It might be a little bit early for that slide. Is being used here as a context for understanding the broader mission that Jesus intends to, to bring the disciples into. In Daniel chapter 7, there is actually nothing there that suggests a coming to earth but a coming to God, in which he receives a kingdom. And so this has led Bible teachers to, to come to different viewpoints as to what Jesus is getting at in this text. Where is this coming, and when is this coming about? Some have thought that Jesus is referring to the time period of the resurrection, in which he ascends to God in heaven, in which he comes to receive a kingdom. Others have looked at it as being Pentecost, in which the gifts are dispersed uh, royally upon the church. Some have looked at this as a time of visitation and of judgment of Jesus' coming to judge the people of Israel in Jerusalem in 70 AD. And still others view it as his final triumphal coming at the return of Christ. The all-millennial position looks at a kingdom that is from the heavens, above the earth. And this is how they look at this text, that Jesus ascends and receives a kingdom as Daniel foretold at the time period of the resurrection or trickle, trickle events uh, early on in the first century. There is also another position called the premillennial position in which we don't discount the text in Daniel chapter 7 as meaning that uh, this is the full expression, but rather that Jesus receives his kingdom at his ascension, and we see glimpses of it occurring through time. Jesus receives his kingdom outside of time, and we see elements of it expressed in time. But there is a belief that Jesus will come again and set up his physical kingdom on earth and rule and reign in Jerusalem. There is a kingdom that is already, but yet, uh, but not yet. And that is the premillennial position uh, in contrast with the amillennial position. And I bring that up because these are questions that sometimes people have. When is Christ going to come? And what's going to be involved in his coming? And in this text, there is an indication that 
Jesus seems to believe that their work will not be done until his, his reception of the fullness of his kingdom. And there is a, uh, an important recognition that in the teachings of Paul, that the Jewish emphasis continued. Preaching the gospel to the Jew first, and then also to the Greek, that has not ceased nor will cease. And I, I wanted to just take a moment, and I apologize for doing this in this kind of a service, because it's important for us to ask ourselves, how is it that people, godly people, can have difference of viewpoint on something like this? Some people thinking the kingdom is happening now and there won't be a physical earthly kingdom in the future, and others who say that there is. Um, I was helped particularly by uh, asking this question and looking for others' opinion on, on how is it that people can have such difference of viewpoint. Um, and I came a lot across a very short list of five reasons. First is, we all tend to read things differently. We tend to be selective, and we often, too often, look at texts of Scripture, and, and, and when all these details tend to overwhelm us, we, we kind of like simplify it down to, to kind of what we can handle. We, 